I believe I'm a good teacher today because I didn't have kids for four and a half years. And we were in Boca and those students became my everything while everyone else was running home to children. And this was like just a job for me. These children were everything. They were my students, but they were also my children. I really understood Chazal's concept of whoever you teach, you become almost like a parent to them. Welcome, everybody, to the first ever episode of the Israel Gap Year Be-In podcast. My name is Avi Proctor. I'm the founder and current managing director of Israel Gap Year and also the host of this amazing podcast. For so many years, the focus of Israel Gap Year was showing everybody in America what it's like to be a student in yeshiva and seminary. And now it is time to get Be'in in depth on the lives of the amazing heads of yeshivas and seminaries and all the different mechanchem here in Eretz Israel. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Rabbi Avi Schneider, who is the head of Yeshiva Torah Shraga, along with his wife, Rebetzin Liba Schneider, who is also one of the heads of the Tiferet Seminary. We talked about so many interesting topics about their life, the struggles they went through to get to who they are today. Um, this was an absolute pleasure, in my opinion, to, to, to listen to them. And I'm super, super excited for you guys to listen to this first episode. And without further ado, it's time to listen to Rabbi and Rebetzin Avi and Liba Schneider. Welcome to the Israel Gap Year Be'in Podcast. I'm your host, Avi Proctor, and in each episode, we get Be'in in-depth into the remarkable lives of individuals in Israel who dedicate themselves to inspiring the next generation of Kal Israel. There are definitely people watching this podcast right now that don't know you guys. Um, I happen to, Baruch Hashem, be sitting here with Yali, my wife, um, in this room. For those, that are dri- for those that are driving that can't see, um, we're sitting here in Neveh Shamir. Um, you know, we, we've known you guys for many, many years, and there's a tremendous amount to learn from both of you, and that's one of the reasons why I want to sit down with you guys for this first um, episode. Um, so before we say anything about your life, who are you and who are you, just for the people that don't know? And hopefully everybody does. You first. But- my name is Avi Schneider. I'm uh, fortunate to teach in the yeshiva in Israel, Yeshiva Torah Shraga, banal of the yeshiva, and I'm uh, married to... Leva Schneider, and I am working in Tiferet here in Ramat Beit Shemesh, and I am part of the administration. Amazing. Okay. So let's just get right into it. Um, I want to start the early years of your, your life. I know, I personally know your stories very well, um, but I'll ask the questions as if I don't know you guys pretty well. So where'd you grow up? You guys could choose who speaks at what point. Um, take me through the, you know, the first 10, 15 years of your life. Where'd you go to school? And then how'd you get to, to Israel? And then we'll kind of go from there. You first. Okay. I'll begin. <laughs> the, uh, we, I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, went to Berman. Now it's Berman. Back then it was called Hogwash, Hebrew Academy of Greater Washington. Little known fact. Um, regular, typical kid growing up. No, uh, no aspirations towards anything religiously. I, I did what I did because my family, Baruch Hashem, was, raised me that way, but uh, definitely did not see myself sitting in front of the famous Avi Proctor uh, in this stage of life as an Avi Shiva, that's for sure, was not on my radar or even a dream that I had or maybe more like a nightmare in theory when I was in high school for sure. Um, but a regular kid growing up, uh, pretty uninspired, but uh, you know, doing regular kid stuff. That's my first 15 years. I am from Teaneck, New Jersey. And a little bit different than my husband, Um, there was a lot of expectation in my home. And I think uh, I was not playing video games and uninspired. I had a lot of inspiration around me. Um, I went to Yavna Academy, which was my lower school. And I guess we're sticking with that first. And uh, yeah, that's the sum up. 
15 years, you said. So we're, we're there. Well, you, you were past 15 when you went to high school already at that point in time. You were oh, <laughs> high school, I went to Breweria. All my brothers went to Frisch, and I had an attitude problem about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, as you touched on a second ago, you were like, oh, I've never imagined being sitting here in this seat as a Manahel. Um, when you were in high school, what did you envision yourself for the future? Like, where do you expect to be right now? I had zero expectations, zero vision, zero goals. I was a kid, I'm sure Avi, you can relate to this point when you're young, you're in high school. You just go through the, you know, you play ball on your team, you uh, have your friends to hang out with, you have your family time, and uh, you hope something, you know, something clicks at some point in time, but I had zero idea. I went to Israel for the year because everyone went to Israel for the year. There was no like, uh, I can't wait to get to Israel and learn. Maybe I'll connect to Hashem more that way. I was an obedient kid. I, would, I didn't violate uh, Shabbos. I kept kosher. But with zero passion, zero inspiration, with zero idea of where my future was headed. What about you? Until Israel and, let's say, my college years, I was very driven to make money. That's where I was heading. I majored in finance in college. My father's a big businessman. So I was driven, but I wouldn't say it was for religious things. So I, I would love to kind of jump to end, how you ended up, you know, being in Shraga and Tiferet, but I feel like we'll go in more of like a, a linear path of things. Um, what ended up happening after high school? Where'd you guys go to Israel? And then, I mean, ultimately we're sitting here right now. We both, you know, all three of us live in Israel. Mm-hmm. Baruch Hashem. Um, so take me through a little bit of that stage of your life. So uh, when I graduated, I went to a yeshiva called Shalavim. Um, great yeshiva, Baruch Hashem. Every she was great yeshiva for the record. I believe that. Um, I remember walking in day one and uh, and thinking to myself when I saw Shana Bet guys like, why are you here still? You made it through. You know, you, you had your year. You learned. Um, I couldn't understand at all why they, uh, why how they were able to be inspired. They're regular guys like I was back in the day. I knew some of them from beforehand. And then as the year begins, so you're like in like a, you know you're, you're out of sorts. I remember struggling through my first few weeks of yeshiva. I struggled my whole year as far as the Hebrew language went and classes went, but uh, for sure being in Israel, waking up and being part of the program for the first few weeks, and eventually you kind of slowly but surely uh, find your way. Actually, my, my, I had one Chavrusa who was very important for me in the very beginning of the year, Joseph Gittler, um, who was my night seder Chavrusa. Uh, recently, unfortunately, had a very serious loss in his family. His son-in-law was killed in Gaza. Um, but um, he definitely kept me going in the first few weeks, first, first maybe a few months of yeshiva. And as one thing works out well in yeshiva, and you, you enjoy that one thing, you give another thing a shot, and you enjoy that. And by the end of the year, I was at the first time in my life, I actually enjoyed something religiously. I would say it's more like a feeling and a process. And then the second year was when I really, I would say, got more inspired in learning. The first year was more inspired religiously, and the second year was more into learning. Uh, again, I had no idea when I left yeshiva where I was going to end up. I knew I wanted to be with people. I enjoyed talking, talking to Shana Alf guys, talking to people. That was very nice for me. I figured maybe psychology. Uh, no, was a long shot, but maybe. Law, maybe law. Maybe law. <laughs> maybe law. If my wife would have wanted me to support her better. Um, but uh, in reality, is I still didn't know. But I definitely knew that it was a new passion that I had and excitement. And I, again, I'm open minded to where life would take me. And uh, that's part one of our journey, part two of our journey. It's funny, but uh, for me, it was probably not my year in Israel. Um, I'm a little atypical that way. I don't know if I should. I mean, I think it's fine to say I went to Midrash at Lindenbaum. I had pushed myself. I thought it was an academically high institution uh, where I'd gone. Buria didn't teach Gemara. I mentioned I had an attitude problem. So at that point, I was like a little sassy to know more and be more. Um, I had set up to go to Barnard after. I got in off wait list, to be honest, not straight away. Um, but then um, I, as 
Midrash at Lindenbaum was coming to a close, which I would say opened me up socially and developmentally as a person, but not as much religiously. Um, I went on to Stern College. I, I made that change because Barnard wouldn't hold my spot for a second year, which caused me to reapply, and I relooked at my life and reevaluated. So the Stern College move was definitely a significant piece in what would be the trajectory of my growth. When I got to Stern, that's when I kind of took off. It's interesting because most people, it's the year in Israel. It was a new social group. It was high-level courses. I could do an ad for Yeshiva University right now. I should be holding a mug and wearing a dry fit. Okay. But, um, <laughs> Shout out to Yeshiva University's campus. What's his name? Also, Joko, so. get this on your, your status. Okay. Anyway. Joko, so. shout out. First podcast. <laughs> pretty good. Anyways, I hope he's listening to this That's one. kind of funny, though. Um, anyway, back to the point, though. Um, I even would credit, it's funny, my husband mentioned Joseph Gittler for me, a friend of mine, Elisa Rabin at the time, she became a very huge source of my growth, both in what courses I took, uh, living a very deeper and more profound lifestyle, uh, discussions we'd have. I went on to the uh, Revel Graduate School. So I would say I'm a real product of growth in the Yeshiva University system. Okay. And okay, so based off of those time periods in your life, um, when did you, you end up meeting? How'd you guys meet? And do you have any funny stories, by the way, through that process? My wife has a lot more stories than I do, so let's let her begin this one. <laughs> what? What? Okay. Um, so it's kind of funny because I was your typical girl mapping out my life. I had done YUSSR, which was uh, Kirov in the former Soviet Union, for three experiences. And then it was time to apply to the big program, the ultimate program. At the time, it was called Counterpoint in Australia. And that was like the gem. My father always makes a joke like, our neighbors are Jews and they're not religious. Why do you have to go to Australia? And I'm like, Australia's just cooler. <laughs> so um, what had happened was... Um, well, why don't you say... Well, okay. Well, listen, you have a whole dating part you left behind. Leave it the whole, like, <laughs> no, no, uh, I'm talking about how we met. Uh, but you have a whole process before we got to each other. Oh, okay. My husband's <laughs> making fun that I dated like 30 guys. Okay, thank you, Avi. I don't know why the whole world has to know that. But yes, I dated a kajillion guys. And um, and thank God it was like a fun experience, but it certainly was not uh, um, going anywhere. Best date story. Um, also, I was majoring in finance, and I meant mentioned that I was driven to... <laughs> You want me to do a best? I have some really funny dating stories. Okay. No, first of all, I'll just say I was dating the wrong type of guy for all those women out there who are trying to figure themselves out. I was going with this model of a power, successful type person. And uh, the value system for those type of people were not always, but unless they're Superman, something's got to give. So I really wasn't finding the drive I was looking for religiously in the candidates I was dating. Okay, my husband wants me to tell a dating story because we're supposed to be funny here. Is that why? Okay. Uh, well, there's the time the I left with the wrong guy from, you know, they always say, is there someone like that? Yes. I went in the car with the wrong guy from Stern College, realized it as he was driving out. <laughs> or there was the guy who I said no to. And he said, if you go out with me one more time, I'll throw in a free mop like it was a joke. And he showed up to the door with a mop with a red ribbon tied on it. Should I keep going? I have so many. <laughs> My gosh. I had the guy who said um, he was going to be really rich someday or he was already. And I said, but God could take anything away. He goes, not if you put it in good stocks and bonds. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was in so many dating experiences. Yeah. That at my shower before we got married, they did a whole take on that. Um, 
So I applied to this Australian program, and I thought it was the spitz of the spitz, like the Harvard of programs. And in walks Avi Schneider, who's friends with the head and like did nothing and got on. And then the first day, I remember, hey, Liba, any, anyone Shayach on your team? I'm like, no, they're so immature. They're so not for me. P.S. I married one of those guys, so <laughs> I had it wrong. Um, so I'm the opposite story uh, as far as book, really everything that my wife said. Uh, he loves I, pointing this out, by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't date anyone. My wife was the first person I dated. It was actually premature before I actually wanted to start dating. We were, uh, as my wife pointed out, I was fortunate to know the, the head of a program who, uh, who was running a thing called Counterpoint, which is in Australia. Um, and uh, I knew him for a long time. We played ball together in high school. So, as Avi can tell you, it's an instantaneous bond when you have your friends from back in the day. So uh, when, he was starting the, when he was running the program, he kind of reached out to me and said, do you want to apply? I said, I have no experience in this at all. He says, don't worry about it. It's fine. We'll get you on. So basically, all of the people he fielded were us, me, and other guys. Like I think two other guys besides and the girls me. Girls sweat for years right. to get earn the right to be on the program. It's true, true. But Hashem had a plan, obviously, because yeah. not only that, the guy who ran the program backed out right before it started. Yeah, that was crazy. Um, so the person who ran it wasn't someone who picked his team. So there it I was, was joining, joining a uh, program with very little experience. My wife went to YUSSR for three years. She mentioned I had nothing like that. Uh, I went to different camps, summer camps. Um, but I'll say he was super capable. And I think that. that's, yeah, that's also what I fell for. So, like, even though he was taken on as a buddy. Um, project, a project. He, my husband's super talented. <laughs> Thank you, Lebo. That's mm -hmm. very kind. <laughs> um, anyways, but uh, so when we got to Australia together, so I was, at the time, I was, uh, I was finishing up, getting into my last year of, 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 uh, of yeshiva, and I was not interested in dating until after I graduated. And it was my last year, and I had not started dating yet. Some of my friends were dating, but it wasn't really on my radar so much. And then we went. And we, then we, we evolved. Let's just say. How, how old were you both at that time? I mean, my wife was, a, I don't want to say this in public, but my wife's a year <laughs> older than I am. Here we go again. So okay, she, yeah. uh, she was uh, already graduated college and started yeah, was, starting like teaching in, in, yeah, uh, in, in high SKA. school. Yeah, in SKA. I was teaching in SKA. That was nepotism. My aunt was the principal. And I was starting Revel. And you I was wet behind the ears, yes. a senior, a senior okay, in college. Having a little too much fun. Yeah. Uh, in appropriate ways only, of course, at that point in my life. of course. Uh, and then we like we're starting just to more cat when the summer was going on. You know, you, you speak. You're part of a team. You have to speak to each other. So there are five guys, five girls working together with uh, different unaffiliated Jews, uh, which is a very successful program, a great program. We've seen seen great successes even from the years afterwards. We saw great yeah, stories. Yeah, we have great stories. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, when we finished the program, so usually it's like you know whatever the program was, you, you go back to your life again. I was in Yeshiva University, starting Smicha as a senior. Um, my wife you know, and I Abby, just... I'll throw out one quick story because I think he wants stories. So, let's so I'll tell you one story. Uh, we called him Undy from Down Under. That's why they <laughs> called him Undy. He was like just... I think his name actually was Anthony, but they can't Anthony, pronounce it well. Anthony, okay. And we said Undy. I don't know, whatever it was. Thanks. You're going to be better with the details. Um, we befriended him in the summer camp in Australia. And then he came to visit Israel and it was for Yom Kippur. We called him up. We're like, you're here for Yom Kippur. You want to come to us? And he wasn't religious. He had like piercings in his tongue, I think even. Do you remember that? Up? And we had him at 
gross for Yom Kippur, which actually was probably crazy of us. Wow. I still remember he, he ate my challah Erev Yom Kippur. He goes, this is, you're a great bread maker. I'm like, this is not bread. This is challah. Okay, but like, you know, and we were like, and he did it. He pulled off Yom Kippur with us at Gross. P.S. Fast forward. One day we're in the old city looking for a bris. Like five or six years later. Or yeah, like Hashem would only do this so orchestrated. Um, and we hear someone yelling from across the rova, Liba Avi, with this Australian accent. And I'm like, do you know that is? Do you know who that is? We're saying to each other. Comes over. He's got the Rabinu Tom and the Rashi Tefillin. He's got a beard. We don't know who it is. And it was him. Wow. And he's married, living in America with a full family, religious. So I want to say to all those Kirov professionals out there, you plant the seeds, but we got to see a tree. Yeah. And yours is close, by the way. Mm-hmm. Was, we played a little small role, but it was really No, it's, uh, it was it's a, a blessing tree. when Hashem lets you see the fruits of your labor. That's how I do it. Like, and then that gives you chizuk, right? And so then anyways, yeah. when we finished the program, my wife and I, I mean, at the time, my fellow worker and I, we just were in touch a little bit. Um, which is one new, unusual for me, certainly, and my wife as well. We're not really socially, socializing with uh, people of the opposite gender. So my wife called me out for that. She goes, what, what story here? Are we, you know, are we dating? I'm like, dating? Like, what? what is that I'm even? the sassy one, always. Anyways, P.S., I, you know, we, we started dating. Uh, my first girl that I dated in, in the post-high school career, uh, which was the one that was, as far as, more, more serious. And um, a number of months later, we were engaged. Yeah. Married now, Baruch Hashem, for 25 years. Baruch Hashem. Kane Yerba. And uh, the, the parents of six, six children. Hashem. So on the topic of dating, and this is something I've really wanted to talk about with you guys, um, how many alumni would you say you both have worked with or students have come in and out the door over the past oh my gosh. 15, See? 20 years? 2,000. Thousands, yeah, thousands. And something at least you know I've realized through our personal relationship, and I mean, for those that don't know, Rabbi Schneider was my chassan teacher. He was my <laughs> rabbi in Chiraga, and we, we, we still, Baruch Hashem, are close today. Appreciate your way. Um, did. And by the way, I feel like right now I'm sitting... We walked down your aisle. <laughs> <laughs> <True>. <laughs> That is true. We, <laughs> for those that know, they know. It's a mice and a half. But um, I think that's something that, that, that I would love to hear from you guys is, is throughout the years of guiding your Tommy Dim and Tommy Dote through the dating process and you know post-leaving Israel, what are some of the biggest things that you guys have realized, advice that you give to people, um, and, and essentially just you know, chizik that people could get from, uh, from you guys, from, from your experience of what you know? I think in our early years, I think we were much more... Uh, we, we thought we should tell people what to do and, and give them this is what you should do next and, and really guide them that way. That was what they, we thought they needed. I think we've realized a lot now that that's not the, the Mahalik necessarily. The Mahalik is giving them options, explaining to them what each scenario looks like and having them pick it. At the end of the day, uh, there's free choice in the world. And even if I can tell them what to do, if they pick a different path than I told them, um, and also, I'm not a prophet, and I've been wrong plenty of times. Don't don't you know? Don't quote that again, Lima. First time, last time you hear that. But um, the idea that a person, everyone's complicated, and everyone has their own situations to deal with. For us, I think I it was think important. to yeah. sum it up, what he's saying is we learn to listen and not just speak as educators. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I heard that. Well said. Um, well, oh, and I'll, I'll add on. Wait, were you going to say something else? Okay. Well, yeah, okay. I think um, also learning as we got older that there are core things that have to be developed to get married and to be strong in a marriage. First for yourself, like the what I would call the Rashid Hayachid, uh, and then ultimately to be able to partner with a spouse. So how to guide our students to have those qualities in dating and in their own self-development 
so they can enter marriage with the right mentality. I think that's a huge piece of what we try to do. Thank God Avi and I have made uh, many shizuchim. Yeah, how I many, think. by the way? I think it's seven, but I'm not, I can't say for sure. Somewhere are they all Shraga Tiferet or the other ones? No, um, no but a lot of them have a one or the other connection. Um, I will say my husband has an eye for the couples better than me. Like he will think of it, but I think I do better on the uh, follow-up. Counseling. Yeah, I do a lot of counseling and talking. It's a lot of work. But I think that the actual like idea, usually my husband comes up with better ideas than I do. In business terminology, I'm the initiator. My wife's the closer. Yeah. <laughs> so we're a team. Yeah. On, on the idea of, of, of shidduchim and, and, and couples and stuff like that, you know, people talk all the time, at least from what I hear, the shidduch crisis. You know, it's so hard. The system messed up. It shouldn't be like this or whatever it may be. What are your opinions on that? Like, do you have, do you think it should be done differently? Um, do you think more friends should be setting people up? Like, what are your thoughts on, like, the whole system that we have today? The, the friend setup is important as far as you get a lot of ideas, but I think it's not the right person to, to lead you and guide you in the process. My wife always says you could get advice from someone so imagine, you know, you guys are young, Baruch Hashem, the two of you, um, happily married, and, and you have a friend you set up, and then they have their own challenges. So that, with all due respect, they shouldn't come to you guys. To pick, you've, been, you've been veterans of marriage for a year and a half, which you have certainly things you can share with them, and that's very important that you do. But they're going through some personal thing. They're trying to figure out is the right person for me or not. So there are people out there that are experienced. You know, again, we're not really Shad Khanim. Um, Though we play them on TV, yeah, it's not, it's not our. We don't. We don't play that role officially. That's a um, 1980s line that no one knows anymore. A, but okay. whoever's watching out there, I yeah. will know. I, I have no idea. Doesn't matter. Okay, Anyways, yeah, yeah. <laughs> point being is that uh, is that we're not shadchanim, so we're not in the business of it. But we certainly uh, we have plenty of times our our students will call us when we didn't set them up because they're going through different situations and challenges. So the first question we always talk about, we make a joke all the time, but this this question. Is it a dating question or a dating issue or a marriage issue? We always talk about things like that. Yeah. There are things that go out there that are, that are very challenging. But the question is sometimes things are challenging that are challenging in dating. We had a story of a person, you can tell the story about the, the, the person with the car. We didn't walk them to the car the first time. They didn't. Oh, yeah. We not just not walk someone to the car, but we have someone who left someone at the LIRR or someone who didn't buy a drink for a date. But it was just boys being stupid. So we were like, my husband and I were like, whoa, 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 we know that this guy is the greatest guy in the world. He's just a boy. So he didn't know to buy a drink. Or he didn't think about what the LIRR is at 8 p.m. that he should have taken you a classier way. But we, it was an hour first date. I do think we've saved a lot of couples from breaking up because people are knee-jerky or what do you call it when you have a, a gun? What did they call that? Um, yeah, they're impulsive about their... Um, their decision-making process, and we try to separate what's a core issue and what's not. Yeah. So on our first date, I took my wife to a baseball game. I like baseball. Um, <laughs> what game? Do you remember? Yeah, sure. It was the Mets against the Blue Jays, September Boring. 3rd, 1997. <laughs> uh, I forget who won. It was a 3-2, but I don't remember right. which team but won. You, were, you already knew each other at that point. Yes. We knew he, each other at that point. That but, was one of our first dates. He pulls out of his bag a stale bagel from the calf of YU and stale. says, I it brought just... food for you. And I'm like, gee whiz, thanks. Like <laughs> now, if I would have judged him on that, I don't like baseball. Okay. I felt awkward there. He likes stale bagels. And he brings this bagel. Okay. And I'm like, what is this? Like, couldn't we have done, done something a little nicer than a stale bagel that he got off his calf card that he's so excited he got $10 off the calf card. Um, and, um, but these are, these are silly things. These are like wrapping paper moments. They're not important. Um, I mean, if, if, we, if, for example, we were set up with someone, then that person's job would have been to say to me, first of all, you messed up that one. And second of all, to her, 
he's just he's new at this. You know, don't judge him for that yet. But since we knew each other already, we gave each other like a pass. On the other hand, I'm going to give, and maybe Avi will go next, an example of something that does matter. So I'll have a student who says, the guy says he never misses a minion, but I realized our date was all of this. It was a Sunday date. I was with him for all of Zman Mincha. Not only did he not go to a minion, he didn't have a mincha. So then I'm like, yeah, that's concerning me. Like if someone's not who they claim to be. Avi, you want to give another? I could give a million, but I want you to give one an example of something that we actually felt was an issue. I I can think. Well, I well this was already in marriage, but I think it could have been picked up before marriage. My husband has students, multiple students, I think where a girl said she's committed to certain things and she didn't follow through. She stopped covering her hair, not wearing skirts. And like, I, I want to say to all the young women out there, be who you're going to be in, mar- in dating. Like, this isn't a game of let's convince a guy to do this and get what we need done and then making a disaster of your marriage. So I've listened to my husband counsel uh, people where the girls shift because they're just like kind of playing something, but they're not really there. Um, so I think that's where we put our critical analysis. Also, red flags. Anything that's not genuine or smells funny, that's where we're going to give our opinion more. Um, I remember one time a student started physically running with her date because the guy said, I don't want to put another quarter in the, um, what's that thing called? The meter. The meter. Like so that. she's like, I don't want a life like that. He like looks at my plate and says there's $2 of meat left on it. And I was like, oh, it's so funny because I know girls that would love that. You're right, $2. Let's pack it up. Let's run to the meter. But this student was like very well to do. And she's like, I'm running to a meter. And I said, well, that is a real Teva thing, a nature of the boy. Could you live that way? And she's like, no way. So ultimately, they broke up. Or I can think of another thing that was a serious one. We had a student who was involved with a lot of girls in his profession. And my student was, uh, the boy was my husband's student. And it helped but, me not, not inappropriately. No, just like no, it, it, it just demanded, involved working with a lot that. of women, young women that right. were single. <laughs> so my student said, this is making me uncomfortable. I picture like getting on the couch at night and you're like on Facebook, at the time it was Facebook, with mm-hmm. all these young women. And he's like, yeah, that's what it is. That's my job. Again, it, it, it was not he an was appropriate not back- job. It was an appropriate job. No, it job. was an appropriate job. But right. he, was, he was not backing down. She broke up with him over it. And they're both married to different people today. You know, now we can Happily married? Happily married. But my point is, I was like, no, that is a thing. Like, he's not listening to you. He doesn't see a problem in this. You don't want a lifestyle like that. That that's not about getting a drink or not opening a car door. You see the difference. So what I would say, just in response, <laughs> or just more like as a as a, as a Rawr, qual- qualification, a yeah, is that my wife and I, in theory, could have been one of those couples because my wife, again, I'm I'm, a, I'm more of the guy running for the meter. Why is the person who's just like, you know, no, but you're not psycho about it. The yeah. point is that you could have one could have our first issue. He we wore had, one pair of pants the whole year in Shalvim. His mother's like, wow, everything's serious? new. It was yeah, more one shirt. It wasn't one pair of pants. <laughs> I think at least two pair of pants. All right, whatever. Yeah, you get the, the point, point. Being that our first challenge we had as a couple when we were dating was over this type of, you know, more of, of how how careful we were with money. And my family grew up differently than my wife's family did. Um, but 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 at the end well, of the day, we tell the story really quickly. I don't know, if, or let it go. You got to talk. Okay, okay. quick stories as, as follows: We uh, we were dating and things were going very well. We knew each other from beforehand. It was the first month or so of uh, of, of yeshiva, so we were. Uh, I mean, of dating. I'm sorry. So we were, you know, we knew each other for a month before, and we were dating for a month. Everything was good, and then we went. To, I never, I didn't own a suit 
Uh, my first, the only suit I ever had was when I was bar mitzvah, and I was a little taller at that point when I was 22, 21, when I was when I was 13. So I didn't have a suit from that point forward. Um, and I was going to meet my wife's, uh, my wife's, uh, my girlfriend's parents for some uh, coming Shabbos, and uh, which was pretty serious already. And my wife said, "You have to have a suit if you want to meet my family. My family, you know, we have a certain way we we dress in the family." I'm like, "Okay, it's not my thing, but of course for the family I'll go." And I remember going to a, a, a store. My wife, I don't remember the store was. Bloomingdale's. That's no, where I, I would go. So it was full price. I wasn't thinking about, you know, I didn't know their different degrees. So I took, I took, you know, I had my dad's credit card, and and of course I wouldn't buy anything without asking him first. So I went to a store. We found a nice suit, fit fit nicely, looked good. According to my wife, at least I don't know, but it looked good. So um, I called my dad just to run it by and make sure it was okay. And he said to me, I'll never forget. <laughs> he said to me, you can buy it if you want to. Just you know, I don't buy that much. I don't spend that much money on my suits. So I was like, and this began a schism between us. It, it was an issue. Uh, it was quite a drama. But in theory, you want me to be something I'm not. My father wouldn't pay for this type of suit himself. This moved to philosophical off the suit very quickly. And that's where a conversation like this would go on, where like you know you have a debate, a discussion about money. What my wife said earlier, people broke up over these things, and we could have broken up over the same thing also. You have to realize when you're when you're dating that there could be issues. There probably will be issues that, that pop up. And not only that, my, my brother-in-law, before my brother, my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, said to my wife when we were first dating, "How are things going?" And she said, "They're going great." And he said, "Have you ever had a disagreement or a conflict?" She said, "No." He said, "So it's not going <laughs> we're great made yet." Made for each other, yeah. So it's not going great because if it's going great, you know how you deal with conflicts together. So we had a conflict. That was the first yeah, conflict we had. And, and I think in general in dating, this is a struggle. There are no conflict resolution tools out there. Young people today are growing up being helicoptered by parents, the assistance and facilitation of like diagnosis and medication and like your, your, your cell phone at every moment. You can even Google a, uh, a term paper and, and a conflict arises and it's like, oh, we're not meant to be. And it's like, no, you need to build your conflict resolution tools. Um, and it's funny, at the time, uh, Avi's sister played that role. She was a go-between. Took us days to get through this conflict, and it made us so much better and so much stronger. We survived it. Uh, so we, we really put work towards that. But conflict resolution is something that today is like, uh, I don't know, it's an unknown art. Which is why I think my wife's point earlier about, about having these differences of, of, uh, of, of, let's say, things that, that come up in dating you have to make sure you have someone there who's going to be your guide. It could be, a, again, a friend is nice to have just to support, but really a, a Rebbe, a Rebbitson, some people may have dating coaches even, just to be able to, you know, is this a big issue or not? Do what I have to do over here? Should I, be, should I be doing something differently, have a conversation as a couple before you so quick to pull the trigger? Even as Shotkins, we've been mediators for people dating to be that conflict resolution tool. We would mediate between a couple, sometimes meet with them together, um, trying to teach them those tools and showing them this isn't scary. This is normal and this is something to work through uh, and to compromise. Yeah. So going from dating to the next step of life generally after you date, you, you hopefully find a partner, you get married. Um, a topic that I feel like is, is, is important to touch on with you guys and, and the amount of chizik that people could get specifically from your story of, of, of struggling to have children for a period of time. Um, Take me through that period of your life. Like, like, what did you guys go through? How were you able to get through it if you're, if you're open to sharing? Um, and then, yeah. So we got married, um, and uh, we went straight to gross after basically two years of marriage. Um, you know, regular excited couple to get married, start a family at the right time. And um, first year of just marriage is, you know, just, again, not thinking about kids so much. It's just, you know, you're going through life. 
And the, the general rule, if I remember, if I understand correctly, is that when you're trying to have children, it's been a year you haven't had children, that's when you start to see a doctor. I think the statistics are, I think, that a healthy couple, as far as both being healthy and fertile, there's a one out of five chance of having a, a child each time, you know, each month. I mean, it's not as if, like, you expect right away everything's going to work out. Okay, so they say a year. If a year passes, you're trying to have children for a year, and you're having a struggle, that's when maybe you start to see a doctor. So our year was based, our first year was in Gross. Um, keep in mind that in Gross, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a place where people have children. Right. You know, and, and young <laughs> yeah. couples and, and that religious level um, and that environment, it's very, you, I mean, you guys were there a little bit. You know, everyone's very much on top of each other. So besides not having children, people around you are having children. Uh, there were even one or two, I would say, that, that, that had a hard time that, that then successfully had a child. And I think for us, uh, it's hard. The hardest part of it, I believe, and you'll certainly say more than I can about this topic, yeah. is having people that you should be very happy for, that you feel like you're sad because for you, you, you couldn't experience that excitement. Um, and I think that's, as, as, a, as a Jew, certainly someone who's going to the role of chinuch, and you want very much, the most important thing is that everyone should be in a good place and everyone should be doing well and successful. So someone else's success, you know, becomes something that you're not happy with. And that's, that's, that's the most, I think, that, at least for me, that was the very, I think it graded on me a lot. I felt very bad about that. But that is the reality of, of trying something that you're not succeeding in yet. I think also in those gross days, because we were there for two years, so the second year would be even more trying, um, I think that a person can protect themselves more than we would have thought to when we were younger. You go with gross, it's free living, my husband's learning across the street. I never really cheshbone the effect that your environment has on you. And a kolel like community environment was actually adding pressure to me emotionally, um, without realizing it. I wasn't mature enough to realize till later that you know I could have done much better if I lived, let's say, more independent of the gross vibe. Because in the gross vibe, the women were taking care of their kids all day, and I went to find a job. Now I thought that was responsible of me because you have to do something with your time. But at the same time, I think there was more pressure than. Uh, than I, there had to be at that stage of life. It's okay if you don't have kids in the first year of marriage, but when you're in gross, all of a sudden it's not okay. That's what I mean. Uh, fast forward, um, I don't know which part of this we want to tell, but um, it ended up being four and a half years till we, we, we were Zoha. So first of all was HaKadosh Baruch um, Finding medicine or finding people who you could call your shaliach from Hashem and not people who felt that they were God themselves. My dad um, and my mother, they helped us fund our treatment. So we went to the top person in New York. I still remember this. And he was like saying, he made it like he's going to grant me a child. I, I didn't see him as my shaliach. I remember one time a, another doctor, I felt it was sleazy. He put his hand on my arm, which was probably illegal, and said, don't worry, this month you're going to get pregnant. And I was like, I am never going back to this doctor. Like, I think that there were just so many times where we saw medicine not interfacing with halacha properly. Now, I remember it was in our years that it began the IVF hashgacha process, where we hired a we did IVF and we hired a mashgiach to watch over that it was our um, own situation that was providing for that baby because really it could you could end up with some sketchy thing that happens. But, yes, um, the, the, I mean just to interrupt for a second. None of those procedures worked, including the IVF. It's not right, but uh, at the time I was hanging on these treatments. Um, but my husband's right. Um, it was painful, um, but I'll tell you the 
the fruits. Like Akadosh Baruch does everything for a reason. I, I don't know if my, my husband has different cheshbon on this, but I'll tell you my cheshbon on this. I believe I'm a good teacher today because I didn't have kids for four and a half years. And we were in Boca, and those students became my everything. While everyone else was running home to children, and this was like just a job for me, these children were everything. They were my students, but they were also my children. Not, not in some sicko, psycho way. I have good psychological boundaries. But it was more like I really understood Chazal's concept of whoever you teach, you become almost like a parent to them. Um, and I cared about them, and I, it went beyond the classroom. My husband and I would have them over for meals. We helped kids who with sophisticated problems at, at home. And um, I do believe we had the time to become bigger and better teachers for it. Um, that's number one. Number two is I think once our children came, boy, did we focus on them. Like it was like such a gift and a gem. You know, some people are like, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant in my first year of marriage. And I'm like, that's great. They're like, oh, it's inconvenient for some reason. We viewed every one of our kids as such a gift that we raised them that way, that they are so important to us because of our challenge. So I do think after we saw a lot of fruits for the challenges we went through. Um, I'll, and, I'll say two, yeah, two small please things. Do, and then I'll tell them what happened at the end. Yeah. What happened at the end? No, like how we were granted. Oh. Yeah. No, it's an unusual story. Yeah, it's a good I mean, story. Why'd you ask that? I'm not sure <laughs> you're talking about. Okay, yeah. Um, just uh, Where did my husband go? Okay, yeah. <laughs> Two quick points. Quick point number one, I think, is that when I speak to students now, you know, as a chassan teacher, as people's rebellion, so they'll ask questions about, about birth control, which is a natural question to ask when you first get married. Uh, and I tell them something which, which uh, more like I can relate to, which is that you never know, you know. You have to do what's right for you, obviously, as a family. I mean, that's halacha, first of all, halacha. And that's something that you have to make sure whatever the halacha says. But even within halacha, you have to understand that it's not a, it's not a gift where you just, like, snap your fingers and, okay, we're having a child. Um, it takes time sometimes. I have plenty of students of mine who were on birth control because they felt like they needed to be. And then when they wanted to have children, it wasn't it wasn't as quick as they would have hoped. And they had a very hard time with that. Again, Baruch Hashem, eventually, you know, and her, that, that to my best of my knowledge, every one of those had children already. I'll but, also add in that... HaKadosh Baruch created a natural order for a reason. And if two people come together and they prevent themselves from having children, they may disturb their own ability to connect with each other. Like children coming into the picture is a, you know, look at Rav Dessler on Kuntras HaChesed. Children coming into the picture demand so much more of a husband and wife for each other and then ultimately for their child that sometimes the people in 2024, I guess we're in now, we right? Are, okay. Yeah. Um, they are control freaks and they feel like they are going to fight against what a Kaddish Baruch Hu sees as the wisest thing. Now, I understand if there's something, an overriding reason, but if there's no overriding reason um, other than like we want to have fun or we want to be married a few years and make some money. Uh, I think you shouldn't deserve, uh, disturb a Kaddish Baruch Hu system that way, um, if, you, if you can. Yeah. So I'll say one, you know, I think what got me at least, <clears throat> uh, my wife maybe also through this difficult time, was the following thought. Thank you. Um, you know, we believe, I always said to my wife, is it, you know, each, each month when you met with disappointment, I remember we would make a phone call to the doctor's office and, you know, any news that we were successful or not, and they would get back each time, no, negative. And it was not, you know, it was, it was not positive or she was not pregnant. So it would be every month was its own set of like, of, I don't want to say grieving, that sounds too strong word, but it was its own set of grieving. Um, and we would say, you know, do we believe at some point in time we're going to have a child? And if the answer was yes, okay, so this wasn't the one. If we're, you know, the, the, the idea of, uh, of, of Shmuel, when, when, when Hannah finally gives birth, 
So El Palalti, this is the child I'm supposed to have. It's what I daven for. So which means that the one that didn't come was not the one I daven for. The next one's what I daven. If this one would have came, then the one I daven for wouldn't have happened. If you believe overall things are going to work out well and that you're in a position where you're doing what you're supposed to do to make that happen, so then you know, Kaj Baruch Hu should uh, you know should, should grant you the gift. Whenever I daven for children, I always davened. If it's at the right time, I should have a child. I've never daven give me a child. It's, Hashem has the you know runs the world obviously. If you believe. Chesh Baruch is going to grant you that, and you daven for it. So then, every time it doesn't come, so that's not the one I'm supposed to have. That was my that was my mahath that got me through a difficult time. I think in general, there's a machloket on uh, Chazal for bitachon. Is bitachon to just rely on Hashem in your situation, or is bitachon that you can believe that if you rely on Hashem, you're going to get what you want? Um, there's really a machloket on that. Like, but my husband and I for sure took the second mahalich. That if we held on and we leaned on a Kaddish Baruch Hu, we would ultimately get what we wanted. Um, that's what we truly believed. And when I would have my very low days, my husband would always say, if you believe it'll happen one day, does it really matter if it'll take a month, a year? Same with an older single out there, I want to say. Like, if you believe one day you'll get married, then stick with your graduate program or go to work every day and don't worry. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu has something planned for you, Keheref Ayin, um, and does it really matter on a time frame if you know it'll occur? It's not a race. It's really not a race. And, and maybe that puts us right towards the end of the story, um, which is so comical, only Hashem could plan it this way. We were Zoha within 15 months to two sets of twins without fertility treatment. So... Um, a little bit of the religious background for that that we see is definitely tied to it. My father put out uh, the Mishle of uh, <coughs> the Peirish on Mishle of uh, the Vilnagon, and uh, in the front are our Hebrew names. And the Rav, uh, Rav Pfeffer, who was putting this out, said to us from B'nai Brak, very hardcore, like scarily hardcore, he said, I want you to give us some money, too. We're like, we're teachers from Boca. We don't have a lot of money. My father has the money. And then he said, no, no, no. Just give me $100 to be mishtatev. Okay, so we gave the $100. And then he said, would you promise your firstborn son to be named after the Vilnagon, Eliyahu? And I looked at my husband. I'm like, I don't think this is a joke. I think this is a real thing. Like, this took his time, by the way. Yeah. About close to eight months, nine, nine months, more than that even, maybe 10 months before we had our, our children. Right. And I said, yeah, we are promising, uh, we're giving our word that our firstborn son will be named Eliyahu for the Vilnagon. He took the Sefer to Lithuania, davened at the kever of the Vilnagon. Um, he knew we were pregnant before we went public with it, because he told my brother, my brother said it's not true, but really the Rub knew, so whatever that means that he knew first. Um, we found out a crazy way that's not important right now. That's that we a great were... story. <laughs> No, it's a great story because... Oh, you know, you're right. Okay. <laughs> we, uh, we had this couple over we had never, we'd never had before. I mean, I was close to the, with the guy and my wife. It, it was her doctor. Um, and uh, we had him for Shabbos lunch. And that Arab Shabbos, my wife did, you know, she, maybe she, she missed her period. And, uh, no, and she, I was supposed to start my next IVF cycle. And I had to do a pregnancy test before sure. the IVF cycle. That was the rule. And so she, uh, she did a test and... We, and we we were positive. <laughs> our leg hurts us. So then for lunch, she so we comes, had this couple over that was yeah, our doctor. Our doctor and I pulled her into the kitchen. I'm like, do the tests ever lie? She's like, no. So we spontaneously conceived without going to that next round of IVF. 
And uh, the second part of the story that's actually crazy is my parents were so worried about us, they came down to give us like a weekend away in Palm Beach just to have some fun after they found out I was expecting. They were so excited. And I started bleeding profusely, and I ended up in the emergency room, and I called this same doctor, come. I need you to come personally. I thought I was miscarrying. She looks up from the screen and said, Liba, it was a blood clot. It's healthy that you're bleeding. I'm like, oh, thank God. And she goes, I have something else to tell you. And she just put up two fingers. And I'm like, what? She goes, you're having twins. And I'm like, what? She goes, not only that, but I think they're identical. Now, let me explain that identical twins biologically do not come from any type of fertility treatment. So no one could ever wrestle me that this was medical. It was a Kaddish Baruch Hu through and through. And our first, they are identical boys. And our first son is named Eliyahu for the Vilnago. Comes 15 months later. We no, was, no, no. Oh. It was very much shorter than that because it was <laughs> probably seven months later. Oh, seven months later. Um, I started showing signs of pregnancy again, and I was like, this is crazy. Just a cute story. My wife, yeah. her, her, her pre- she's like a, she becomes like a superhero with smell. <laughs> yes. Everyone has their own like, unique like, yeah, pregnancy. Yeah, nauseating. Height, Everything of, smells. So we came back. So we, had, we were on a pace-up program, and we came back from the pace-up program with my parents, and we took to our apartment, whatever, the, the town. And I'm like, our Boca. whole house smells? I was like... Is, is there like a strong like detergent smell? I'm like, what does that mean, Liba? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I am not pregnant. It took me four and a half years to have children. There's no way. P.S. I go to this doctor. She's like, she starts. We took crying. a test, right? So, so we knew already. We right. Were but expecting. then she basically started cursing, you know, because she's not religious. And I'm like, what are you cursing? She goes, Liba, look at the screen. And I see bump, 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 <laughs> two again. And I'm like, what? This time it was fraternal. Now, um, at that point, we had decided we were moving to Israel, and we decided maybe this is all tied together. We are not changing our plan, even though it'd be hard. And I came seven months pregnant with my second set of twins to move to Israel. With our first set of twins, one year old. Yes. So it was very complicated for us at the, in those days. But I mean, we are the story of Keherefi and how your life can change overnight. Uh, we went, you know, from no children to four children in a span of. 15 months? 15 months. And then we were Zoka 12 years after that to have Barba Mitzvahs, four of them, two and a half months apart. Yes. One year, four kids being Bar and Bat Mitzvah. Uh, we seem to do everything in big, sh- you know, we, we, you know, and then we were Zoka to two other single children beyond that. So years later, it's almost like I had secondary infertility and then I had two singles. So going from zero to four. Yeah. Real quick, as they say. How do you pull that off? Like, like no help, no family. I mean, your family wasn't living here at the time, right? We had help. I mean, we 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 hired a baby nurse for a period of time. We had we we brought someone to live in and help that way as well. Yeah, we had a like a live in t- not not a Jewish woman, but like someone uh, who could help us, like a Filipino. There was no way to do it alone. Yeah, but um, it, so it that was, was the physical help. It was definitely challenge. It was a challenge we were very blessed to have. But like when I would let's say on Shabbos, we would have like okay, you know. <laughs> What time are you taking a nap? When am I taking a nap? And like, you know, when he'd go to shul, I'd be like, "Don't go." <laughs> we could, we go, we go, we fly in airplanes. We'd have four. I mean, we had four infants that we would. Yeah. We both were like strapped up with baby Bjorns. And they'd all be crying, and someone would be like, "Why don't you drug them?" And my husband would be like, "Why don't you drug me?" <laughs> People would be like, "What flight are you on?" I hope they're not on our flight. You know, like yeah. it was like. It was our anniversary once, and all four babies were crying on a plane. And my husband looks at me and goes, "Happy anniversary, Leva!" <laughs> but I think we had the patience because we waited so long. I mean, we were we were in a different life circumstance that we we understood that it was a huge blessing. Uh, now looking back, it helped us 
because everything became packaged in four, while everyone else would have had child after child after child after child, we figured out how to live life in like sort of Costco size. And it actually worked better because it allowed me to take care of them as a group as opposed to taking care of them as individuals when they were so young. Yes, and also like you have your built-in play dates. You know, you're talking about four kids within a year off each other. Yeah. You know, especially during Corona time, it was like we had our own like little like like team hanging out together all the time. It was like a real uh, till today. Thank God. I mean, now they're 20 and 21, uh, respectively, the twins. But uh, it's quite endearing to watch how they interact and how they team together. Even the four of them at times, um, we're very thankful. Baruch Hashem. So on that. Um Something that I find fascinating about both of you guys, and, and I mean, I don't know how many people watching this or listening to this have been zocha to meet your children, meet your family, be at your Shabbos table and whatnot, um, but how in the world do you balance a job where you're the Manahal of Yeshiva and you have 100, how many students in Shraga this year? 150? Mm-hmm. Okay. Something well, like that, that. Yeah, 140 starting well, off with the year. 140, yeah. you, have, you have 140 current students, you have a ton of alumni, and you also being a Tiferet and being in a similar situation, how did you balance through the years of giving your children the proper chinuch, proper attention to bringing in, I'll say this honestly, like they're, you know, the people in your schools are, are a little bit different than, 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 than how you would probably raise your children. And, and you could have the, fa- the fear, excuse me, of exposing your children to certain things that you don't necessarily want. Like, how did you do it? Because, um, you know, I'll say this, you know, honestly, from my perspective, like your children are amazing. Hmm. Um, and I get tremendous like from seeing you guys and how you raise your children. And that was one of the reasons, you know, why I decided to go the path that I did in life, you know, hmm. through Yeshiva, because I came to you guys and I saw how you raise your children. And that's, that's something that can be going. So how did you do it? You want to go first? Or no? I'll go first. Uh, I think there's so many layers to this answer. Um, and I want to begin with a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Um, and a story that my husband knows I often tell. I went to my principal, Chaya Newman, from Berea's funeral. And the story was told, and it, it really encaps, encapsulates a lot of where I went next with my thinking with Hashem. Um, she got very sick, but she was very devoted to her students through the years, to the point where two dysfunctional homes, she took in the kids and walked them down the aisle. So she was a very committed principal. And in her late years when she had cancer, there were nights, they told us at the funeral, where she would sleep on the couch of her office because she couldn't afford the energy to come back and forth, but she wanted to be there for her students. And uh, what they said at the funeral that never left me was that she would daven at her candlesticks on Friday night, a Kaddish Baruch Hu, I'll take care of your children, you take care of mine. So that's the first thing I want to say. If you technically look at parenting classes, I mess up a lot. I just want to say flat out. Namakabu. Okay, but I happen to think, like, when I have a sister-in-law who's, like, literally could write the book on parenting classes, and I'm like, okay, did that wrong this week? Did this wrong? Wrong, 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 wrong. You should see me. I'm, like, on a warpath Erev Shabbos in my house. You know, whose shoes are these? Why didn't you shower? You know, never scream. Oh, Shefala, you need to shower. I don't talk like that, okay? Like, oh, sweetheart, put your shoes upstairs. I am not like that. So um, I just want to stress that... Usually they're my shoes, by the way. Usually they're my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a warpath. No, so my point is really, I don't take the credit. I believe that a lot of it has to do with where you're putting your time. Everyone has a certain amount of time in their day. And I think HaKadosh Baruch Hu protects people. Look, 
also there's nature and there's life, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not going to do miracles for you. I'm not implying that. But he's going to give, I hope, more hashgacha pratis to people who are out there helping Klal Yisrael. So some of it is really goes against the laws of nature um, that we felt if we help Klal Yisrael, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will look out for our children. The second thing I want to stress, and then I'm going to hand it over to my husband, is creating a home where we, like, okay, I hate to label it, it's kind of, it's not trying to sound this way, but like, we're Schneiders. This is something we built very early on with our kids, and there's a certain way we do things, there's a certain way we approach people, religion, life, Eretz Yisrael, like the Chinuch came from inside our home in a strong way. My husband and I are very strong about our opinions. In fact, I think we're stronger than our children are. You know, they kind of took a, a little, like they appreciate being a little more chill than us, which is fine. Um, but in the home, we made a very clear divide that the Schneiders have a certain education and the Schneiders behave a certain way. So if there's a guest at our table, which they love, they love having, you know, my students, my husband's students, different stages, different, you know, opposite sex, same sex. This, you know, nowadays we got to like behave at the table, but, <laughs> but, um, they love the action. The boys with their sense of humor that, you know, they'll sit and play settlers all afternoon when we want to nap. Or like the the girls who are so inquisitive and so involved and love to give my daughters attention and admire my daughters for who they are. So first of all, they love the action. But second of all is, even in our community, we're a little bit different than where we live. In Ramachilo is very Datilumi, and we're, I guess, identified more Haredi. Um, we've taught our children, like, our home is like, that's what we're learning from. And everything outside of our home is something to take in, consider, and respect. But I think that um, they took to that message. Your turn. Uh, said it very well. Okay. <laughs> I'll add just one or two small points. We also recognize there are people around who are great families and that the children you know, take a different path in life than they do. And it's not as if that every person who's in Mechinuch, you know, Hashem protects your children. Everyone has free choice, and that's important to realize. So certainly, we feel very blessed that our children have taken the path they've taken. It's not something we take for, we take lightly. I think you're underestimating the Talmidim and Talmidot that we have, meaning they're not like us, but they're they're passionate and they're driven. Yeah. I, my, I think my kids actually are inspired by our students because they're watching. They'll see a student of ours come in Shana Aleph, and at the end they'll see Shana Bet, they'll see him Shana Bet, and they'll be like, like, what happened? They've been on a very, you know, slow, appropriate Classic. trajectory. Yeah. So that when you watch someone make a real life shift, and they see it all the time, because we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people, hundreds of people yeah. who walk through our doors, you know, including you, who, uh, you know, <laughs> and including you, who, uh, who are able to to take a life and really kind of cut out the fat a little bit. Of course, you still enjoy life. Thank God, you're able to balance it. But that's a, that's a tremendous lesson for my for my kids. So we're not like, you know, guys, close your ears, you know, hold your breath for the next, you know, no, no, watch. I want you to watch. I want you to listen. I want you to take part of it. Uh, even so much, like we'll have now, I have this new thing I started doing two years ago. Maybe it's my wife thinks I have, a, I have a, something I have to probably see a therapist about, but I like to have Shauna Benchoff guys together. I like to have the two of them oh. together. I like, to, I like to have them watch, you know, each other, interact with each other. I think that you learn from watching each other. We've trained our students, our children, to learn from watching our students, and they leave inspired by it. So that's part one. Part two is that our students are respectful, meaning they usually at the table will be, you know, play the right role they should be playing. 
And occasionally, if they don't, they have a conversation that's maybe not up to our interests. Yeah, we've had some feisty ones, yeah. Which, which you know, is exciting, and we talk about it afterwards as a family about Even that. Even with our children, like some real disagreements at the table where, and I'd say to my husband, okay, let's switch courses. My husband's like, let it be. He likes letting them duke it out. He thinks it's healthy for our kids and like to take a stance on something. So we've had some... Give an example. Yeah, the example I would give is probably more like what I mentioned earlier about the, our hashkafa is more being more right wing, a little bit more right wing. You know, um, again, we're very, very now we're not tolerance the wrong word because tolerance implies like I'll deal with you, but no, I, we, we respect very much other groups. But there's sometimes people respect the right wing world less. So someone come in, you know, all fire it up about like Haredi this, Haredi that, and my daughter, you know, it's in the student of mine. It's a, it's a male student. My daughter is a female, mm-hmm. obviously, um, and she will like like bite back, and we're like, whoa, like. You know, where's this coming from? And it becomes like a, like an awkward thing. But I haven't like awkward. I'm into awkward moments. <laughs> I like it. But I think it's something where where like let it play out. You know, let them talk it out. It's not, you know, we're at the table together. And there's I think also if we're going to create a home where we allow people at the table, we have to allow our children a voice. Like we don't stifle them. They reflect on the people that come. We talk about it later. Lito Elet, not like some lush and hara fest about what suit they wore. More like observation, a thought. Um, we have, I mean, just to give you one example, there's a student who was supposed to go to like Emory, if that's a college, to play ball, and now he married the Rosh Yeshiva of Betar's daughter. You know, so if my children are watching that through the years, it's going to instill in them a lot of thought, a lot of, also, they have to figure out who they are. Um, and, and I think another thing that my husband and I have is an openness and tolerance for all people. We've had non-religious people who brought their cell phones to our Shabbos table. Or my, you know, I remember times where people... Not just, our students, not our students. Or, or I, or, oh, I didn't mean that, sorry. Yeah. Or, or I'll, I remember someone, no, I have Mechina students from the Mechala program. You know, they'll do something like they'll rip a paper towel or they'll put chapstick on at our Shabbos table. Like, they just don't know better all the way through to these super Haredi people who will not come if we don't if we have other guests we have, we've had students come who are married who will not come if we have any other guests cuz it's not religiously appropriate but we are pretty chill about our table cuz in our home cuz we feel that creates avas israel um, so some people would have a problem with that they'd say oh my gosh you should close up to only your type that's not how we operate yeah the last thing I would say before we get to the next point yes. is that if also if you, again, there's, there's no secrets here and there's no, there's no like one recipe fits all, but um, if you, I'll give you the muscle of the swimming pool. If you have a beautiful swimming pool that's heated and, and, and so nice, then your kids want to, they want to go swimming there. If you find a neighbor has a broken down pool that's got algae growing in it and it's not cleaned ever, so that's not exciting for them. So I think to, to, to demonstrate and to show this is the, a great life to live, you know, what, what you're seeing outside, what people talk about, is that something that's exciting for us, you know, to hear about, I remember one time I saw and I were walking to, to shul, um, and we saw a kid, like, uh, you know, near us, who was, like, shooting a basketball on Shabbos, again, not, not a criminal activity, I don't think, and you look at recently, but I don't think it is, but he was wearing, like, a certain jersey of, like, a player, he was doing some, like, I don't know, what, it must have been the, pre, the foul shot routine of that player, kissing this, and, and it was a weird, like, I never saw, I never saw that player in place, so maybe that was the routine he did. It's not like I felt like, oh, wow, I want to get that jersey and start doing that now. It's like, what is up with that? So if you create a, a, a mentality, this is a great way to live your life and everything else, not, not judging it, what's up with that? It's not, it's not enticing for me. So it also makes it easier for someone to be experiencing other things and, and not to be drawn to those other things. I remember my daughters were <clears throat> shopping with me all over America on a trip when they were younger. 
and it was a, an early Shabbos morning. We were all jet lag and sitting at a table too early in the morning. And my daughter looks at me and she says, I can't wait to get back to Israel. And I'm like, I am so happy you said that. Because I, I just realized, like, no, they love filling up the duffel. Don't get me wrong, you know, or a week of shopping in America. You know, they're young teenage girls but uh, at the time. But um, they love Israel. They love Ramat Beit Shemesh. They want to raise their kids in Ramat Beit Shemesh. Like, I, I'm just so thankful that they view life that way. And, and we can't control those things. Um, but, you know... I'll give you one more example, and then we'll really shut up. But my <laughs> daughter said at the Shabbos table this past week, so I, I happen to live a very serious philosophical life. That's just how I live. And she said at the table, women don't need to be so... To my, to my husband's students, I think it was your Shabbos, uh, and some guests, um, my, I learned in my seminary that women, our job is not to learn as much, but to keep a home. And I'm fine with that. And I don't think I have to philosophically look into everything in Judaism. I, am, I have a Muna and I keep mitzvot. We got into the kitchen and my daughter says to me, I'm sorry I said that at the table. I said, why are you sorry? I love that you said that. She said, it's, it's the opposite of what you do. I said, I don't care at all. I just want you to have an opinion. And I said, I am proud of what you said at the table because that's what you believe in and how you'll live your life. And you don't have to be like me. Um, but I, I, I want to say that that like would be an example of like, they're not little mini us, but they have opinions and religiously they're holding and they care and, and they don't have to live their life exactly like ours. So on the topic of, uh, of dealing with students and working within the Yeshiva and seminary world, um, I'm very curious to hear both of your opinions on, if you had to categorize, I guess you could say the people that go to, um, you know, Shraga and Tiferet, I would, let's say, put them in the modern Orthodox world. Um, through working within that world for the past 15, 18, 20 years, working within Chinuch, how has it shifted in terms of the challenges that people deal with? What are the, some of the biggest things you guys have realized, essentially dealing and working with people within the Chinuch world? So I'd say that uh, when we were younger, it was like you went to Israel for the year. As I mentioned earlier, you, you were locked away from society. So, you know, you, you, had, to, you had to deal with it. You had to... to to adjust to the new environment, um, and it was you know it's pretty it was pretty easy to to get involved because what other options did you have? You want to? My parents would send me Sports Illustrated articles, you know, and they would be from a month ago, so it was news to me. But it was a month ago. Like it's 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 hard to really uh, stay stay involved in the outside world. In the world today we live in, is not, you don't miss a beat. Um, you're actually just as as involved, and in theory, it's tremendously distracting. Uh, not in theory, in reality, it's very. I'll have guys who I see the next morning, bloodshot eyes. Uh, what's going on? I said, Well, I had to watch the Islander game last night. I'm like, Is it playoffs? No, it's, a, it's the regular season. They're just, they're just, they're your addicts, okay? But what that means is that if you can, you know, when I was in Yeshiva in the year, so many of us who did well went back to America, and then, you know, you went back to your old ways because you reintroduced that part of your life and you couldn't balance it well. I think in Eretz Yisrael now, and the reality is again, even though it's much, it's much harder in many ways. I think the the change is much could be much more long lasting, because it allows you to have dealt with it already, you addressed it already, you had exposure to it already, and you you gutted it out, and you saw two options in front of you at the same time, and you picked one and you liked it, as opposed to I had no choice, I had to do that, and now I come back, I'm like, well, I like that also. How do I balance those two? So. I'm not saying that it's that we're in a better place as a world for what we have, but I do believe the yeshiva experience in that way is a positive. That though it's harder maybe to to, to jump that 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 that's to the next place in life, but if you do get there, 
I believe is a stronger staying power in many ways. I, I think Avi's approach here, I, I actually never heard him frame that, but it's very interesting because it's saying that you're bringing your life with you to Israel because it's on your cell phone. Um, and that causes you to be a little bit more realistic about your growth in Israel. So that's interesting. I never really thought of that. I, I want to highlight two things. Uh, one is on the same topic as my husband about the internet. The internet, just by definition, I mean, Halavai, it's an Islanders game. Um, the internet, by definition, is antithetical to what we're trying to do in Israel. Unless somebody's on uh, Meaningful People all day. Okay? Or your podcasts. Or your podcasts. Or uh, Shout Out right. Meaningful People. Um, uh, I think that a lot of the internet represents, you know, TikTok, Instagram, chat, chit, chat, whatever GBT? that is. Snapchat. No, Snapchat. Oh, Snapchat. Okay. <laughs> no, I didn't even get that one right. Sorry. But... All these things are taking you away from the message. The example I used to give in the olden days, I know this isn't a hot TV show anymore, but you're learning Lusha and Hara one a day and you're watching Gossip Girl. So like that was like the, you know, it's like the current is running against it. And that's a lot of our education in Israel to try to teach that. We both run tech yomiyuns and other things to try to address it. Uh, men have it even harder with some of the inappropriate things on the internet, gambling and the like, dot, dot, dot. Um, and um, these things run against what we're trying to uh, do in Eretz Yisrael. So that's number one. Number two is, um, and my husband knows this is like my core thing. I still remember uh, the new president of YU came to meet with every school, and I brought this up years ago, and I think that people probably thought, oh, she's on a mission, but I, I couldn't be more serious about this, and I think that it's been proven to be right, um, is the emotional, psychological well-being of a person today to handle the message. If you look at uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs in psychology, the lower needs have to be met before you get to higher needs. And the lower needs are not really religious needs. Uh, needs of um, being taken care of for safety and after safety relationships and then the ego. These things have to be fulfilled before a student can start asking the larger questions of Hashem, my life, religion, uh, which uh, would be called in Maslow's hierarchy of needs the highest peak of the pyramid. Um, so I've spent a lot of my life on those lower needs. I assess every student where they are on those needs. Uh, and I don't have dysfunctional students. I have high-functioning, impressive students. But we live in a world where students today do not have the tools they had in yesteryear. Some want to blame corona. Some want to blame modernity. Some want to blame the internet. You can blame whatever you want. We've been around long enough. This is one thing, I, with all my wrinkles, I have bragging rights that I'm older. And we've seen generations of students. Um, so the student today is different than the student of yesteryear. Um, and I, I've spent a large part of my role in trying to build students from the bottom up. Because if they have strong foundational pieces, then they can approach religion in a more authentic way than just flipping out in the year in Israel. That's actually one thing about that. And then... Uh... <laughs> One of the biggest challenges that we have with, let's say, a smartphone, um, certainly with the immediate access to your parents, is that if anything goes wrong, my wife mentioned before, you have to deal with certain issues. If anything goes wrong, I get a text from a parent within within moments. Me too. And uh, <laughs> and you think to yourself, like, this is, back in the day, the kid would have to deal with this. What we've done is we, we've, you know, my wife's pointing out that the, the hierarchy of needs, so our when we have need, we just, our knee-jerk reaction is we go to, we go to our parents, which which makes sense when we're younger. When you're older, imagine at some point, you know, Baruch you guys are an established couple. You know, you have to deal with things on your own. If you always reach out, everything that happened right away to, to mom and dad, 
that would be a challenge because then it means that you're not, what happens when, you know, when, when Baruch and get older and then your kids look up to you, but you've never yourself had to deal with those points. So, you know, you have something wrong with the food, which happens rarely in yeshiva Torah Trag, but it could happen. So, you know, so I, I forget, I don't need a mom to text me. The kid come over to me and tell me what, what you missed your meal. So come tell me that. Let's work it out together. Build your character through your conflict. We're a little bit, like a generation, a little bit softer right now. Uh, how you speak to people is much softer. Everything has to be like understood. You know, you can't have an opinion and say, I think this might be wrong. I spoke to you before about like giving advice. So I do believe you still have to give people advice and, and, and suggestions. At the end of the day, like there is right and wrong still in the world. Um, and there are ways to deal with things and ways to harden yourself and not in a bad way, in a good way, to be stronger, more confident, um, to be the guy for your children at the right time. So we need people then to be stronger. And I think with, with the internet and with the, the quick access and a quick WhatsApp and a picture and a video and sending it right away to the parents, within moments, the, 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 family, the parent chat has it on it. And a few minutes later, the, the administration hears about it. So that's not the way that we grew up, certainly. And that's not going to make future leaders. It's going to make people who are handicapped in making decisions. And that's really a big challenge I think we do have. My today. son is in high school right now in a sleep-out yeshiva, my rabbi, and there's a parent chat. And sometimes they start with opinionated points. And I'm like, wow, this is a parent chat. I don't participate at all. I don't want to be a part of it. We're calling the rabbi. We are, we are writing the principal. P.S. They never even get what they want. But I think to all those young couples out there, managing parent group chaps respectfully through the laws of Lashon Hara, but also through the laws of respecting an institution and allowing your kids to become slowly independent in the world. If we could put that shout out to young couples to approach it differently, um, I think you know, you, you, know, you would partner with, with institutions instead of us feeling like we're up against each other. Oh, this, this morning is the last point. Uh, my daughter, twelve-year-old daughter, is it was like had a certain a certain um, clothing issue she had she had to worry about um, with her school. So I said, so and she said, made a comment to me. I said, just so to tell the teacher, go to, tell your principal, go to her and tell her. I'm, I'm not going to write to your principal. You tell your principal. And again, she's twelve. She's not like you know she's not in high school in the seminary. But like you have to learn. We this is our kids. We feel very strongly about this. You speak to your teacher. You speak to your rebbe. You work with the principal. Learn that you have a voice and that you should respectfully discuss something so that you can grow from the experience instead of having someone in the back channels take care of you. That's not going to help you in the long run. And that's going to build someone. Over time, when a child is told to start managing things themselves and they do it well, that builds confidence and esteem and a sense of uh, independence. So, you know, that's certainly how we parent, but we would love for our students to be seen in the same way. I look at my students and I said, all I'm giving you are ideas um, and I'm going to take you very seriously so that you take yourself seriously. That's, that's my approach. So we kind of hit our max, I guess you could say, in, in terms of timing. Um, and shout out to Yali, my wife behind the camera, who actually mm-hmm. just gave me the idea for this question. Um, is that, as you said before, the, when you guys give hadrach and advice to people, um, it's more like the, we'll give you an idea and like, you know, or show you the options and then let you kind of decide from there. Um, if there was one thing that you guys could end off this podcast with as, as a takeaway for, for all those students that you guys give advice to. That's like a put the put the little letter in the bottle, if that makes sense, and take this with you wherever you go um, in life. What would that advice be? You first. I was hoping to think longer. Uh, right, okay. I'll go first. You go for it. Um, I, I have to return back to Torah and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. What does Torah have to say on the matter? And what does HaKadosh Baruch Hu want from me? <clears throat> and in order to answer that question is a lifetime of work. 
Um, especially uh, last night I heard Rabbi Aryeh Leibowitz speak, and he, for fun, said, let me do the three most recent shilas I had as my shear. And I was intrigued by these shilas. And I, he was talking about the shilas, and I kept thinking, who are those people? Who are those people who went up to their local Orthodox Rav and asked such fair, authentic, sincere questions about their life? That's, that's a person who's like, Rabona Sholem, you're, you're in charge. And I am so mech on you, and I want to know what you want from me. And translating that into our lifestyle and our, our life circumstances and our life conflicts is a lifetime uh, pursuit, whether it be forging a mentor, which is the, really where Tiferet shines, or whether it be using the Svarim themselves. This is something my husband's taught me many a time. I'm putting this out there for future people who want to grow. Svarim are mentors, too. Like, it doesn't just have to be people, because someone will say in Stern College even, they can't find someone to like hang out with. You don't have to hang out with teachers all day. Um, you can find a safer that can give you direction. So that's like the guidance, the mentorship, uh, your local RUV. Um, in fact, uh, Rabbi Leibowitz said in the Shear last night, not a single person in his community lost faith from October 7th. They all just came to him more wanting to move to Israel, if anything, and had so many shilas. And I, I was like so much appreciating the community around him that is constantly seeking like what is Torah one and what is Rabbi Shalom one. The last thing I will say is personally, I guide my students through a specific safer of the Mesila Yeshara. That is the safer I use, even though unfortunately, I even asked this to Rav Shechter recently, so I know it's true. The first two levels are re the most realistic for today's society, not really moving out to the umpteenth level of the book, of the Sefer, but um, because I learned the Mesila Yisharim for so many years with so many students, I do use it as a map to help students because a lot of their struggles can be found in the Mesila Yisharim if a teacher can figure out how to translate it in. I hand it to my husband. Okay. <laughs> first of all, good answer, Liba. Thank you. Um, That's why we're married. Okay. <laughs> 25 years. Yeah. The, uh, the truth is, is that uh, I'm going to give a muscle to give the answer. The, the, whenever someone would say the night before he goes to sleep, he wants to go to Minion in the morning. And uh, we're all tired in the morning. Everyone's tired. I don't care what Minion you go to. I don't care when you wake up. You're tired. So when a person says, I want to get up for Minion in the morning, and comes 7.30 is alarm clock. And then he's tired. And he's like, ah, I'm too tired for it. I said all the time, I said, don't make decisions at 7.30 in the morning about anything. You know, if you, someone's going to wake up at any topic at all, 7.30 a.m., you're the, you're the least smart version of yourself at that point in time. So whatever you decided the night before when you were intelligent and well thought out, you stick to that decision even when you're tired. Um, that goes across the board for anything. I'm talking about Minion with them, but that's really about anything. So if I decide the night before I'm going to Minion in the morning, then I don't care what my 7.30 version thinks. That's the worst version of myself. I'm going to Minion anyways. You take that and you kind of blow it up a little bit into life. So at some point in your life, you're going to have a level of clarity that you did not have beforehand. And then you're gonna go back and it's gonna become murky again. Even though I gave this whole muscle beforehand of like, you had your phone with you and you're able to deal with it at the same time, that, that is true. But you also, a lot more things are surrounding you in out of yeshiva. When a person has a path in life, sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, that wasn't really me. That was the yeshiva, that's not real life. Parents all say all the time, go back to real life. Real life is, as my wife said just now, is a service of a Kodesh That's the only thing life is. Everything else is just like icing on the cake. How you serve Hashem could be many different areas, that's true different passions that you could have, but that is the ultimate question. Is this helping me serve a Baruch in the world or not? If that's my, 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 my vision, that's my, that's my question I ask myself all the time about different things in life, then as things are going on, 
Um, and I'm, if I still stick to that approach, then no matter what's going on, I'm still going back to who I am and what I am. And I'm, and I'm going to answer the questions like I did back in yeshiva. The greatest challenge I feel we have is people who advance, quote unquote, past the yeshiva year. And they advance, quote unquote, past their rebellion. They start working. They have a family. And then they have life. And life just gets them distracted. And they start to think about themselves. You know, that wasn't really me. I'm very comfortable with someone having life challenges. And you even say, I wish I could be back there. I'm struggling. As opposed to, that's just, that wasn't me. That's not real life. The one thing I would say, put in a bottle, a message in a bottle, is that whatever are your lines that you have when you're in yeshiva, that's probably when you have the most clarity. Not ideal, the, least clarity. the ideal you. The most yeah. ideal version of yourself. And doesn't mean you're always going to be there. You might not be there sometimes, but at least know that's where your target is. That's where you're aiming towards. I, I If I could just add... Um, this, is my, this is my message in the bottle. Okay, go, 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 <laughs> All right. Open go. up the okay. cap. Uh, <laughs> if I could just add to that. So many times people say everything was clear in Israel. I was the best version of myself in Israel. I didn't have any pressures in Israel. And I, all I say to my students is, why can't you take that to go? Figure out what you had in Israel that gave you that clarity, you know, whether it be Torah, whether it be the land. So stay in the land. Like, why place it on the institution or the year? When are you going to transfer responsibility to yourself? And a young couple, let's say they, they're lacking some of this and they're like, the ideal me is so far away now. Why can't they sit together late at night when the kids are sleeping and say, how do we create, uh, you know, what we had there where we are right now? Uh, whether it be, I'm going to start Dafyomi, says the boy. And the young woman says, I'm going to open my sitter again. Like, why can't they generate it? It's not the institution. After the year in Israel, it must move to the person. The structure must move to the person, the ideals, and the follow-up. Um, so don't label it as Israel. Label it as, I can do this no matter where I am. I can take it to go. And I'll say the last part is that, that's what you have your rebbeim for and your chaverim, meaning people in life who, who didn't get sidetracked or rebbeim who knew you in the best version of yourself possible. So you can you cannot stick them for five years and reach out of the blue. I remember there's a guy who did that to me a number of years ago where he just, we haven't spoken in a while, but I'm having a, a midlife, quote unquote, he was young, he's not midlife, but a crisis. You know, hold my, hold, walk me through it, hold my hand through it. So if you have the tools in your box that you know you leave with, and no matter what, a rebbe is always a rebbe and a rebbe is always a rebbe and no matter how much time has passed and how many mistakes have been made along the way, but nevertheless, this is a person who knew me in a certain place. And if I'm not there right now, but I feel like I want to get back there, then you do not hesitate to pick up that phone or just not. Now you just text it yourself or voice note it. I'm a voice noter. Um, and, and let them know that I have a struggle right now. I would like to meet up. You couldn't be. I'll come. To, even imagine this. Imagine if you flew to Israel. You're in America and having a hard time. You flew to Israel. I want to see my Rebbe. I want to sit down and talk to my Rebbe for a little bit of time. We've had that. We've had students that just show up by themselves. I'm like, where are you for Shabbos? No, I'm staying at a hotel near the Kotel. This is for me trip. I'm like, wow. Like, take ownership on your life. Yeah, and use your tools. And if you do that, you'll be zocha to uh, hopefully find your dreams and goals. And most importantly afterwards is keep those dreams and goals. I want to say, I know I'm always adding, but um, there are so many of our students that have surprised us. You know, we're not... We, we don't need to be, it doesn't have to be according to us. You know, some students, they take it so much more than we would ever imagine that it just proves to us that it's all Bechir Rechav and where you take it. Amazing. I think that's a, that's a wrap. 
we'll, uh, we'll put it at that one. This was the uh, the first of God willing many episodes, and who knows? Maybe, maybe we'll do this again if you guys are interested. Always, we'll, uh, always. We'll, we'll, I mean, I, I feel like we covered this much. Knowing you guys personally, I feel like there's so much more to talk about. Um, but just really, as I started this off with a carsetov to you guys, um, thank you for taking the time to sitting down and schmoozing, um, and we'll see you guys soon. Yeah. That is a wrap, everybody. Um, I really enjoyed the past hour and a half sitting with Rabbi and Rebson Schneider. I learned so many amazing things about them that I didn't even know before sitting down and speaking with them just now. And I hope you guys took some chizik out of this episode. And I really appreciate you guys for watching up until this point. And if you are watching this point in the video, feel free to give this video a like on YouTube and subscribe to the Israel Gapper YouTube page so you could get notified when we put out future episodes. I look forward to the next episode coming out soon, and we'll see you guys in the next video.